Well, as we walk through Genesis, as we've been learning about Genesis going through it, Genesis is a book of beginnings. Told you that from the very beginning. (laughs) It's beginnings. Genesis means beginnings. And as we turn to chapter three today, we are going to read about a monumental event that would affect the rest of human history. And I, as I was thinking about it, I pretty much directly or indirectly refer to Genesis chapter three almost every week in every message because of what happens here in chapter three and how it it shapes the rest of the entire book, the entire Bible, and how it Even though we're way back at creation, at the beginning of creation, it now has impacted all the way up until the the current day. Now, the amazing part is that at first, it seems like this is something so small, something tiny, something insignificant. But in fact, it reshaped every human being that followed Adam and Eve. If you already know about Genesis chapter 3, you know that what I'm referring to is the first sin, sin. So far through our story, as we've been looking at the creation account and we looked at how God created the heavens and the earth and all the things in it and how he, he, he first formed heaven and earth and then he filled them, right? And that's what we've been going through for these past few weeks. And then we see humanity come onto the scene and he commissions them to, to begin caretaking this new creation and everything is good. And what we see through it is God is saying, hey, this is good, this is good, this is very good. Everything's good, everything's going the way it should be. It's the, the, the utopia that we all dream about. Everything's okay. But then we come to chapter three and we deal with the very first sin. I told you at the start of this study, we'd look at the beginning of creation We'd look at the beginning of humanity, but we'd also look at the beginning of sin, all right? And that's where we find ourselves today. And what is it that Adam and Eve did? Well, we'll get to it. Many of you already know that Adam and Eve rejected the command of God and ate some fruit that they were told not to eat. And when you think about that, you're like, so they ate some fruit. What's the big deal? I mean, how, how bad can this piece of fruit actually be? Well, we'll get into it a little bit. But what we realize is it wasn't so much about the fruit that they ate. It's the fact that they broke relationship with God. They broke relationship with God, the the perfect relationship that they had, and they fell from the place that he had for them. That's why this event is commonly referred to as the fall. It might even be labeled that way in your Bibles as the beginning of chapter three, the fall. And today we're going to look at the narrative, but we're also going to consider our own lives. As people that followed Adam and Eve, we're people that have followed their heritage in sin. And so we're going to look at that a little bit today and see also what God has done to counteract sin's impact. All right. So if you're in Genesis chapter three, we're going to read the first part of verse one. Here's what it says. Genesis three, one. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Now, I'm already going to stop right there, <laughs> um, I, and we're going we're to talk a little bit about this, because this is kind of strange. Adam, remember, was given the job to name animals, 
And I told you, this was quite an event that probably took place. As he's going about and he's studying these animals, he's looking at these things and their behaviors and, and their, their activities and what they do, and he's naming all these creatures. God gave him that job to do, all right? And so here we get one of these creatures, this serpent. Now, the serpent that we find in Genesis 3.1 wasn't just a regular snake. And I know that um, snakes are actually one of those creatures on this creation that kind of freak some people out. You know, spiders and snakes. I think that's kind of like two of the biggies for people. But this serpent wasn't just a regular snake. He was crafty, as it tells us here in this, meaning he liked to, you know, sew and paint and no. Um, but he was more than that. He was more than just crafty. Later in scripture, we find out that this serpent was actually the devil, okay? And that's helpful to know when you're reading this story of what's going on. In Revelation 12, 9, it actually tells us. It says, and it's referring to the end, and it's referring to the devil and the fall of all things. But it says, and the great dragon was thrown down, the ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. This is referring back to this moment here in Genesis chapter 3. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Now, if you're new to the Bible and to Christianity, this is kind of a big idea to sort out. Because already, right here into this chapter, um, most people know just open up the Bible to Genesis chapter 3. Um, hopefully you've started in chapters 1 and 2 and you're trying to understand this world and this creation and all this. But when you get here to chapter 3 and you see this serpent that pops up and you start understanding, wait, this is the devil. Whoa, this is already like I'm already in deep water here, spiritual waters. We're talking about a devil. We're talking about spiritual things and good and evil and all this battle. It's a big idea. And the reality of what's taken place in the spiritual realm and what is happening here in this chapter is, is really more than we can comprehend a lot of times. And lots of questions pop up. When you read through these early chapters of Genesis, you've got all these questions that come up. And unfortunately, or fortunately, it's in God's knowledge, um, we don't have a whole lot of answers of how this all unfolded. All we see here is this serpent in this garden. And this serpent, as we're going to see, has a big impact. The Bible is silent on many of the details surrounding the devil, okay? Um, but I do want you to know that it does talk about the devil. And the Bible describes a being, a spiritual being, that is uh, real, that there is a real devil. There are a couple of vague references in the Old Testament. If you want to study this on your own, you can. And Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14 are two of the big ones, which describe this devil as a created being. So he's not eternal like God. He was created. Who had an important role in heaven. All right, before men and women and the rest of the creation was happening, God had created these, these beings, all right? And references here seem to infer that he might have been involved in the musical worship of heaven. That's kind of a weird surprise that you see in here. There's um, some references to these musical elements that it seems like the devil was involved in. Um, and, but not only that, it, it definitely makes it clear that he had this distinguished position among the other angels. 
But what the Bible tells us is that he rebelled against God's authority and was cast out of heaven and into earth, taking some other angelic beings with him. All right? Jesus actually recounted seeing that happen. It's in Luke chapter 10, verse 18. He said, as he was talking to his disciples who were so blown away at experiencing all the spiritual stuff that they were seeing, they were watching people who had been possessed by demons, demons being cast out, and they saw these other things of miraculous healings taking place, all these crazy supernatural things that they're like, what is going on here? And in some of that, with that all happening, Jesus says, look guys, I know this is, it's pretty crazy stuff. It's radical. Jesus actually says, he says, I saw Satan fall like lightning. I know there's all these spiritual things that just blow your minds. It's out there. It's wild. It's incredible. But that's what, what, that's what's taking place. All right. And Jesus, as he went through his ministry, as you follow through the gospels, you see that Jesus believed and described a devil, a real devil, as a literal being. The rest of the writers of the New Testament, Peter and Paul and John and James and the writer of Hebrews, all refer to the devil as a defeated yet dangerous adversary, not just of Christians, but of humanity in general, that describes the devil as a roaring lion, as a thief, as someone that is in the world trying to seek out and to steal and destroy and to harm humanity. That's what we see throughout scripture. The spiritual realm is real, even though we can't see it with our physical eyes. And I know, especially when you come to hear this in the first time, you're like, this is crazy stuff. (laughs) It's hard to understand. It's hard to think about and to sort out. It's strange, but it's true. Now, there are some believers that have pretty elaborate constructs and explanations for angels and demons and all sorts of supernatural occurrences. Uh, and, And they put a lot of focus on that, right? Some of you have experienced that. You may have friends that are Christians that talk about all this stuff that they know about demons and the devil at work and, and all of that. And it's kind of overwhelming, especially if you've not heard of any of this stuff before or been around any of this stuff before. It's, it's almost overwhelming, right? And, and much of that, much of what they've talked about is, is based on personal experience. They've seen radical things or, or, or heavy things, right? And, 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 it, and it is, it's, it's their own experience. And personal experience is valid, But we also have to be slow to build our theology and our practice on experience alone. All right, so you've got some believers that are like, oh, it's all about the devil and demons and we pray against the devil and we we shout at the devil every time we come to church and we do these kinds of things. And then you've got the other side of of believers that that basically say, oh, there's nothing supernatural. We want to eliminate anything that seems like it's a spiritual force. We don't want to deal with that. Anything that's supernatural or incomprehensible. And for many of them, it's based on a lack of experience. It's like, well, I haven't seen that, so I don't think that's real, or I don't think that's true. And so they they lean over that way, right? And so you've got these two different extremes on it. But I will say that about uh, this, about uh, being on that side of this, if if there's a person that's like, well, it can't be true because I haven't seen it, all right? Here's an example of, of why that doesn't always work out. I believe that there's an Eiffel Tower in Paris, but I've never been to Paris. (laughs) I've never seen an Eiffel Tower. I've seen pictures of the Eiffel Tower, descriptions of the Eiffel Tower, 
Some of you have been to Paris and seen the Eiffel Tower and they could, you could tell me it's real, right? But just because I haven't seen it doesn't necessarily mean it's not real, okay? And I think it's the same way when we start talking about the supernatural spiritual things. We can say, well, there can't be a devil. I've never seen him. There can't be a demon somehow lurking in the spiritual realm. I've never seen it. It doesn't mean it's not true. If though, and, and what we try to do here at this church is we try to craft a biblical worldview. What we believe is that the Bible was given to us by God to help us navigate life and understand the physical and the spiritual realm. All right, and so what we try to do is we try to base the way we believe, the way we think, and what we understand by what we find here in Scripture. All right? And if we are going to choose to have a biblical worldview, I think we actually fall somewhere in between these two extremes. Okay? We fall somewhere in the middle. We don't go and blame the devil for everything bad that happens. But at the same time, we don't pretend that he doesn't exist. All right? The scripture, the Bible, has been given to us as the primary guide for understanding the spiritual world. All right, here's three things that I'm going to give you that that help us understand the spiritual realm. Number one is the scripture, the Bible. All right, what's in here, what's been written down in here is to help us understand what is real in the spiritual realm. The secondary guides are important also. Another thing that's important for us to understand when it comes to spiritual things is our minds, our, our reason, our logic, our experience. It's good to think about these things and try to figure this stuff out. God gave you a brain, use it. <laughs> That's what it's for, okay? But also, we also have to consider the testimonies of others. This is where it comes into some of that experience, personal experience. We consider the testimonies of others who walk with God, other believers, and also people from history who've walked with God. That's where you read these books of these ancient people that walked with God their whole lives and and wrote down their experience. But even then, even when we take all these things and try to figure this stuff out, I understand if you still feel like the spiritual realm is kind of cloudy in your mind. It is for me. And so here when we're coming into Genesis chapter 3 and we start reading about this devil that has appeared on the scene And we're trying to figure out how did this happen and how did God ever even, why did God even create the devil? Did he know that the devil was going to do this? If he knew that, then why did he let him come onto earth? And why, if he's going to cast him down to earth, and what are these other angels doing with him? And so how did they become demons? And what was that like? And then how does this all continue to play out? And so are they eternal? What's God going to do? You see what I mean? Like all these questions start coming. Still, uh, we have to hang on and we have to try to walk through it and understand that there's going to be some things that we don't understand. Because here's what you also um, see. If you are a Christian, you already believe in the supernatural. All right? Just being a Christian, you believe in the supernatural. Our faith hinges on a couple of supernatural things. We believe that Jesus resurrected from the dead. That's what gives us hope that we will one day resurrect with him. All right, that's radical. You talk to somebody who's not been around a church or not heard about Christianity and you tell them, I believe that Jesus was a human being who died but rose again. You tell them that, they're like, you're a crazy person. That can't happen. Well, it can't happen unless something supernatural takes place. Unless there is a God that's beyond this natural world, that has a power beyond this natural world. 
we await his physical return, Jesus. And as we've already learned in Genesis, Christians also believe that God, the definition of supernatural, that God is the one that created all things out of nothing. That's supernatural. That's what we believe. We believe that all of this wasn't at one time and that God created it. All right, so if you're a Christian, you already believe in some supernatural things. So be careful if you're like, well, I want to believe that, you know, there's God and all this, but I don't want to believe in a devil. I don't want to believe in that spiritual realm stuff. Okay, but I'm just telling you, if you're a believer already, you believe in a couple of supernatural things from the beginning. The problem is this. Supernatural things just wear us out. It wears out your brain. If you're like me and you usually process the world with your head first, it's, it's just hard. You start going down these trails and you're just like, I don't understand this stuff. I, this, is, this is difficult. It wears us out. Well, I want to encourage you, get comfortable with not having all the answers. All right, that's the way it is. But I do believe that God will lead us and guide us even through things that we don't understand. So back to the snake here. Okay, so we're going to finish verse one now. Um, so the serpent, more crafty than every, any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made, he said to the woman, you, you read that right. This is the snake speaking. Told you this is weird. This chapter is weird. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when we take these verses in Genesis, at face value, what we see here is the devil, the spiritual being, taking possession of a creature and supernaturally speaking through it. That's what the Bible describes. Now, I don't think that this proves that all animals could talk before sin entered the world. Some people think that. See, look, the, the snake could talk. I think all the animals could talk. Yeah, I think that'd be really cool if animals could talk, but I don't believe that that's what we necessarily see here. But apparently this one did, all right? Now, some argue that Genesis is all figurative language and others say it was literal, but either way, the outcome is the same. The outcome was that Eve was enticed to question God's good plan. Whatever was spoken to Eve by this speaking snake, this serpent, it caused her to doubt God for the first time. It caused her to wonder, could that actually be true? I believe and know that God is good. That's my reality. And so I'm kind of living life expecting God is good. He's given us this garden. He's created us. He's given us these animals. Everything's good. He tells us it's good. We have a relationship with him. That's all good. I believe he's good. But then the serpent comes along and makes Eve question, is God actually good? Is he good? And I think that we can, we can learn a lot about this. Uh, the, the manipulative deceiver that the devil is, he didn't really come right out and say it. 
He didn't come up and just say to Eve, hey, God's not good. It's not how he did it. Not at all. In fact, he starts out with what seems to be a kind of a harmless question. He starts out with and says, hey, so are you telling me that God who put you in this garden with all these beautiful trees and all these incredible fruits that are so good to eat, he told you that you couldn't eat of any of this stuff? Which is not what God said, right? And Eve knew that's not what God said. And so Eve says, well, no, he didn't say that we couldn't eat of any tree. It's just this one particular tree. He, but, but what is he doing? He's actually questioning God's goodness, one of the core attributes of God. And he puts Eve on defense because she's not expecting this. She's like, okay, wait a minute. Hold on. You're saying that God couldn't be good. What does that mean? I don't even, I don't even know what I'm supposed to say here. And, and so she begins to question God's goodness. And at that point, with Eve off guard, then the snake follows it up with a lie. What does he say there? He says, if you eat this, God knows that if you eat this, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. Now that is a straight out lie. The first thing is kind of a partial lie, a half lie, a little lie that made her question a few things. But this one is a straight out lie that you will be like God. And that is the way that temptation often works for us. Temptation. Temptation usually smart, starts small. Temptation can be just a quick little fleeting thought, a quick idea, a little compromise. And what happens is we question a truth and then we consider a lie. That's what happened with Eve. She questioned the truth that God was good and then she starts considering, well, if this isn't the way I thought it was, maybe there's something else out here. And so the devil sets her up. He sets her up to question the truth, if God is good or not, but then sets her up to now say, well, listen to my lie, which is that you will be like God if you eat of this. And, and, and you have to understand that an enormous security breach can happen through the tiniest hole. We... Um, at our house uh, a few months ago, I walked into the bathroom one morning and I saw a little puddle on the floor in the bathroom. I'm like, this is kind of weird, you know? And I'm like, there hasn't been any like little kids in our house lately that could have left a puddle on the floor in front of the toilet. Um, it's morning time, what's going on? I'm looking around and then I look up and there's a drip dripping down from the ceiling. And I'm like, okay, what's going on? We've got an issue here. I can't really see where it's coming from, just a drip. One small little drip, make a tiny little, little puddle on the floor. Well, it ends up, I have to get a, a plumber out and the plumber comes through and tracks it down and cuts a hole in the ceiling and finds there's a, a pipe that's leaking. Now, when he showed me that, he brought me in and he said, oh, I found your leak. And he shines a light up there into the ceiling and you can barely see this little mist kind of coming. You know, you can reach up and sort of feel that it's wet, but it's not like there's just water gushing out of this thing, spraying out, anything like that. It's this tiny, fine little mist. Well, this tiny little, like, microscopic hole in a pipe ended up costing $1,000, making $1,000 worth of damage, right, over time. This one little hole just soaking everything above it and then eventually starting to drip through drywall, and so then they got to cut holes out and replace pipes and, you know, the smallest little thing, a small little hole can expose us. 
This is how temptation usually gets us. It's not usually some giant thing all at once. In many, many situations, it's a little thing that just builds over time. And we have to understand that no one is immune to temptation. Not even Jesus. Jesus dealt with temptation. It tells us in Hebrews 4.15, 4, it says, We do not have a high priest, meaning Jesus, who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Now, this is important for you to understand. Temptation is not sin. Temptation is not sin. Temptation might be drawing you towards sin, might be pulling you towards sin, but just because you have that fleeting thought that comes through your mind, just because you have that little idea that you know doesn't line up with how God's calling you to live your life, that doesn't mean that you've sinned. But temptation is the first step to sin. It's the front door. But the good part is we learn in scripture that we can overcome temptation with God's help. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says this, it says, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Hebrews 2.18 says, for because he himself, Jesus, has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. The solution for temptation, and I wish Eve knew this, things might have been different in the world, but the solution for temptation is turning to Jesus. That's what we need to do when we're feeling temptation. He is our security and he is our protector. The temptation for Eve was to believe that God wasn't good, that he wasn't looking out for them. But unfortunately, the story doesn't end with temptation. All right, now let's read verse six, Genesis 3, 6. So the devil has come, spoken to her. And in verse six, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. This is the sin, all right? This is the thing. Now, I, I want you to notice this. There are three things mentioned here, and all of them centered on her personal desires, okay? She looked at it and said, it's gonna taste good. I believe it's gonna taste good. Now, whether the snake is there, you know, snacking on this fruit and saying, are you kidding? You don't want to eat this one? Oh, this is the best one in the garden. Like you got to, you got to eat from this tree. If that's what it was, I don't know. Um, but that's the first thing, right? It, it's going to taste good. It was beautiful to see, beautiful to look at, but also it will make me wise. So I get to eat it. I get to see it and I get to enjoy this wisdom that it's going to give me. It's, it's, it's focusing on that, that self-centeredness. And here's the thing about sin. Most sins, just like the first one here, are self-centered. Most sin, most of the sins that we sin in our life is because we're self-centered. It's naturally who we are. And most sins come back to us wanting to please ourselves. 
And we aren't here in this passage. We're not giving any, given any insight into the internal struggle that Eve had. You know, um, was this a spontaneous decision that she made? We don't know. Was this a period of hours or days or weeks? We don't know. Did she keep walking through the garden and the serpent keep popping back up again? Are you sure? Have, did you try the tree? Did you try it? Have you had that fruit yet? No? What are you waiting for? You know, I don't know. Or was it just the kind of thing where she walked in, the serpent said that, she's like, I don't, okay, great, and just went for it. We don't know. But it came down to a simple decision that followed a simple action. Eve and Adam decided that their way was better than God's. Instead of looking to God for their fullness and wholeness, they looked to themselves. And most of the time, that's how we get ourselves into sin. I've told you a very simple definition of sin is anything that breaks relationship with God or with each other. And most of the time, the reason we would ever break relationship with God or break relationship with one another is just, it's just simple self-centeredness. It's we want our way. We want what we want. And we would rather put that above anyone and everyone else. Instead of looking to God, they look to themselves. And sin is really that simple. Now, I know that sometimes we're slow to call things sin unless they're really major failures. It's like, well, okay, that's a bad and stuff, but it's not sin. Sin's like the big stuff. I can handle doing a few things a little bit wrong, but, but sin... But here's what we have to understand. Major failures, the big stuff, are usually comprised of minor sins. All right? Major failures come from minor sins. People don't usually just run out and cheat on their spouse just on a whim. Oh, I think I'll wake up today and commit adultery. It doesn't happen that way. Right? It, it, it takes time. It, that kind of a decision is usually backed by dozens, if not hundreds or thousands of little thoughts, little grievances that pile up. People don't just go murder somebody in cold blood spontaneously. It's like, today I'm going to become a murderer. Go kill that person. No, that's not, that's not how it works. It's, it's compounded by, by anger and hatred and then sorrow and hopelessness fueled by decisions to reject forgiveness and embrace the rage. So no matter how small it starts, though, what we have to know and what the Bible teaches us is that even if it's a little sin, sin always leads to death. It might not be immediate death, but the wages of sin is death. It might not even be physical death. It might be just the death of a relationship. It might be the death of your reputation. It might be the death of a business deal. But sin always leads to death. And Eve believed that her way was superior to God's way, and so she chose her own path. But before we beat Eve up for it, we've got to recognize that we do the very same thing all the time. It's part of who we are. Just because sin is common doesn't mean it doesn't matter. And even little ones are bigger than we realize. It is common. Sin is common. And sometimes when things are common, we get numb to them. Um, how can I explain this? I, I, was, I was describing 
Um, as I was thinking about some different illustrations to describe that, I was thinking about what I have in my hand here, a phone. Most of you have one of these on you. That's common. This is a common device now. I mean, try to walk around in any town, city, village practically in the world, and you're going to see a phone, right? It'd be really hard to go spend a day around other people without seeing a phone. It's like almost impossible. It's that common. But right here, this little common device that I have in my hand, an iPhone here, this common device has more computing power in it than NASA had in 1969 when they put Neil Armstrong on the moon. Okay, the fastest, most incredible computers in that day were far inferior to this little computer that I have in my hand. Uh, and a, it, this is actually an old science article now because it was the iPhone 6 was the iPhone that was out at the time, <laughs> all right? And it, back in that time, iPhone 6's clock was 32,600 times faster than the best Apollo-era computers. And it could perform instructions 120 million times faster. This is like a little common device. You know, we drop them now, and we're like, ah, oh, I dropped it. This is a million times faster than a computer that could put a person on the moon. Now, it seems common to us, but it's not. It's not. There's, some, there's something serious about this, right? I'm, and I'm trying to get you to understand, with sin, it becomes so common and so prevalent, and everybody's doing it, and it's happening all around us, that we're just like, oh, it's just sin. It's no big deal. But it is a big deal. This little sin of eating a piece of fruit and going against God's command, this little sin of saying, my way's better than your way, this little sin transformed the whole world. It changed their lives. It changed Eve's life and Adam's life. It ended up getting them kicked out of this garden. It changed the whole course of humanity. And it's just a little common whatever sin. All right, and so the Bible tells us that our sins really do matter. What we like to do as people is we like to compare ourselves to other people. What we always say is, well, I'm at least not as bad as that person. <laughs> and as long as I'm not as bad as that person, then I'm at least somewhere off the bottom. And if I'm somewhere off the bottom level, then maybe everything's going to be okay. And that God, someday at the end of my life, he'll look down from heaven and he'll say, well, you weren't the worst one on earth in all of humanity, and I'm only taking the bottom 1% and sending them to hell, but you, you made it into the 2.5 range. You're gonna be okay. That's how we view it. And we just think, oh, it's, it's not that big of a deal, but it is a big deal. And God does take sin seriously. Now, the most effective lies incorporate just a little bit of truth. The devil told Eve that she would gain knowledge if she ate from this tree. Well, duh, God called it the tree of knowledge. <laughs> so that shouldn't have been a big surprise. Eve shouldn't have been like, oh, I had no idea. Right? It's called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But what kind of knowledge was it that Eve was about to gather? She thought, oh, this is going to be great. The devil just told me I'm going to be just like God. As soon as I eat this, I'm like God status. Well, that's not true. That was the part that was the lie. Let's read it. In verse 7, it says this. Then the eyes of both were opened, 
and they knew. Here's the knowledge. What'd they know? They knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, verse 11, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Here's what I want you to see here. The the knowledge that they gathered. Here's three of the things that they learned in this. The first thing, piece of knowledge that they picked up was the knowledge of sin. Before this point, nobody had ever sinned. No one, ever. They had gone against God. They had broken relationship with him and they knew it. As soon as they ate, they realized this isn't okay. God told me I shouldn't do this and I did it. I now understand sin. They had a knowledge of sin. Second, the second thing that we see here, the second bit of knowledge that they got was the knowledge of fear. Did you notice what Adam said there? He said, I heard you coming and I was afraid. Adam and Eve had never experienced fear before this. This is the first knowledge of fear, of vulnerability, of danger. They're, they're questioning in their own minds, oh no, God told us not to do this. We did this. What's God going to do? How is he going to respond? And third, not only was it the knowledge of sin and the knowledge of fear, it was also the knowledge of shame. That's what it says there. It says we're, they were naked. They were exposed They're exposed to each other, but they're exposed to God as well. They became aware of their differences. And their nakedness was more than just physical. It was spiritual. It was emotional. And it was relational. And what was their response? What happens when they recognize this shame? Try to cover up and hide. They couldn't bear to look at the Lord. As soon as the Lord starts coming, they're like, we got to go hide. We can't be seen by him. And that knowledge that came from the tree on that day has been passed down to every human being since. Sin and fear and shame are here to stay. That's why we call it a fallen world. That's why we say we live in a fallen world. And because of those things, because of that knowledge, We try now to protect ourselves. We try to overcome our insecurities and our weaknesses. We use things to cover up with. We use achievements to hide behind. We wear masks to disguise who we really are and who we know we are. We push others away if they get too close to us. We attempt to save ourselves. That's what we're trying to do. And all of that goes back to this moment in the garden. Now, as we finish here this morning, I can't, leave you like that. (laughs) 
We don't want to just read this passage and understand the fall and recognize, wow, now there's sin and fear and shame in the world. Hallelujah, let's go home. (laughs) No, the good news is this. The good news of the gospel comes along with a greater knowledge, a knowledge that covers over this knowledge of sin and death and shame and fear. God was not willing to leave people in their brokenness, in their sin. We can't save ourselves from our sin, from our fear and from our shame. But God in his mercy did what we cannot do. And he came himself to be our savior. The gospel acknowledges our sin. It says, yes, we are sinners. That's the first thing to understanding the gospel, to realize that I am a sinner, just like you were a sinner. And it doesn't matter who I'm pointing at because I'm pointing at a person and we're all sinners. And the gospel says, yes, we're all sinners. But it also then moves on to replace our fear because our fear is, okay, if we are sinners and God has told us that the wages of sin is death, what's God gonna do? That's scary. But what the gospel tells us is, no, he, he made a way that that fear could be taken away, away from us because he will replace our fear with faith. And what the gospel message says is that the one that, who would believe in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Most people know that verse. They don't know another verse in the Bible. They know John three sixteen, right? For God so loved the world that he'd send his son. And so our fear can be replaced. Our sin can be taken away and he can remove our shame. I, I referred to this verse earlier, Romans six twenty three. for the wages of sin is death. But what's that verse go on to say? But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Isaiah 1.18 says, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Guys, the devil is still at work in the world. He's a real being. There's still a real spiritual battle going on. Sin is still wreaking havoc on people's lives. And we will still be tempted to question God's goodness and God's good plan. But instead of looking to ourselves, we can look to Jesus for salvation. And this morning, we're gonna take some time to share in communion together as a church. It's the first Sunday of the month. And in a moment, as uh, the worship team comes back up, you guys can go ahead and come on up. Um, we're going to pass out communion. For those of you who are believers here today and would like to share in communion, we're going to take that together. And as we celebrate communion, this is what we're doing. When we take the time to look back and remember what has been done for us, the work of Jesus on the cross for us, what the Bible tells us is that God himself came in the flesh as Jesus Christ, came onto this earth, and as he came in the flesh... He came and gave himself. He died for us, taking all of the sin of the world, all the way back to Adam and Eve here, all the way from the past, all the way up to the present, and and, and even into the future. He took all the sins of the world upon himself. And the wrath of God, instead of being poured out on each of us who are sinners, the wrath of God was poured out on Jesus in that moment. That's what destroyed and killed Jesus. But... 
the hope that we await for, the hope that we have our hope in, is that God then raised Jesus from the dead. And that's what he does in our lives. When we're willing to put our faith and trust in him, he takes our sin away and he raises us from death, from that place of sin into new life, into new creatures. And that's what we celebrate as we gather together for communion. Let's pray this morning. Please just close your eyes with me this morning. Lord God, we come before you as as broken people as people that have struggled with sin. And I may not be able to make a whole lot of statements that are true for every person in this room, but I can make the statement that all of us have sinned. Your word reinforces that and tells us all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so, Lord, I know that I stand in company with others here today that have struggled and have failed. We struggled with temptation and we've fallen into sin. But God, here we are as your creation, as your people. And as we stand before you here today, Lord, I pray that you would speak to our hearts and our minds and allow us, allow us, God, to be made clean before you. And the only way that happens isn't from our own good works. It's not from us trying really hard. It's simply from accepting the free gift that is given to us in Jesus Christ. The free gift of salvation and healing and wholeness. Jesus gives us his righteousness for those who would receive it. And so God, if there are any here in this room today that have not put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ... I ask, Lord, that today you would draw them to you. That you would call them by name right now where they're sitting, even if they've never experienced a spiritual moment in their lives. Lord, I pray that today would be the day. Open their hearts, open their minds to receive you and know who you are. And Lord, I pray that they would put their faith and trust in you for salvation. And God, that you would do a work in their lives. You'd begin to transform their lives. You'd begin to allow them to see what life can be like being free from sin. Sin strangles us and it holds us back. It, it keeps us in its grip and its, its claws and it wrecks our lives. But you, Lord, came that we'd have abundant life, that we'd have joy and peace and wholeness and love. And so, Lord, I pray that you do that powerful work in our hearts and our lives today. We thank you and we love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.